0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode 93 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Connor Johnnan, and I am currently joined by my co-host, Carlton Gover. David will trickle in as he normally does at some point during the interview. In this episode, we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Richard Adams. Dr. R- Dr. Adams personally spoon-fed the archaeology Kool-Aid to, to me at Colorado State University, and he knows both Carlton and David. We wanted to have him on to discuss his work in Wyoming, his work with Dr. George Frizen, and his outlook on teaching. Dr. Adams, how are you doing on this lovely Monday? Hey, Connor,
0: It's great to be with you. I want to thank you guys for the invitation. Yeah, man, of course. It's a pleasure
2: pleasure having you. I think the last time I saw you, I was moving to Boulder, and I was dropping off my U-Haul in Laramie, and I stopped at a gas station off of I-25, and you were walking out of the bathroom as I was walking in because you were (laughs) heading to the airport to fly (laughs) somewhere. That's
0: right. That's right. That was a while ago.
2: Yeah, man, they're like four years at this point. So just kind of starting, starting off this episode, what were your first experiences in anthropology growing up? Like, were you, you know, as we say, like a dinosaur kid, a history buff or a nature nerd? Like, what was that initial draw that kind of uh, inspired that passion for archaeology?
0: There were a couple of things. I was a nature nerd. My mother self-taught herself how to hunt for mushrooms. So we spent all summer hunting mushrooms in Wyoming and experimenting with ones, and that taught me to look at the ground. And then in the the fall and in the winter, I was living in Chicago, and my dad and I would go to Maxwell Street, which is a world-famous flea market where all the wares were spread out on blankets on the ground. And we had specific targets. We were looking for brass doorknobs, and striker plates and hardware and things like that. So we move it on fast clip, and he was looking for these specific things. So you scan an area and find that. And I realized a while ago that that's where I got my eye for looking at things, was looking at the ground for either for mushrooms or for bargains. And then apparently I was an anthropology nerd at a young age. I do not remember it. But one teacher and one neighbor both predicted that I would become an anthropologist, and uh, they were right. My high school social studies teacher said I'd be an anthropologist, and my next-door neighbor, who was a psychologist, predicted that I would become an archaeologist, and they were both right. So it was destined. But then in 1971, you guys remember that, right? 1971? they of course, stand- 1971. I was, I was in eighth grade, and my mom was trying to get rid of me because I was an unruly teen. I wasn't an unruly teenager. I was just, I was a young young boy. You know, we're all assholes, and she was trying to get rid of me, and she found this archaeological excavation run by a high school social studies teacher down in Central Illinois near Dixon Mounds, and she sent me on that, and I had a wonderful time being, you know, scum labor that that we were as volunteers, the first thing we had to do was move the back dirt pile because the features were under it, you know, standard (laughs) archaeology. And I remember doing that. And I remember being with a bunch of city kids and one of the city kids peed on an electric fence, which caused quite a bit of hilarity uh, for all of us (laughs) who knew better than that. (laughs) (laughs) And what I really remember about, that particular summer, early summer in 1971, was there was ditchweed growing in in the ditches in central Illinois. It was as ditchweed does. Yeah, it, it was hemp, but I didn't care. It was 71, and there, there was also a blonde named Bonnie, and, <laughs> and I was after her. So, you know that that set the stage. For it, And then the big defining moment came in 1974 on a Sierra Club Forest Service trail maintenance project in the wilderness in the Absaroka Mountains near Brooks Lake, Wyoming, in the Togetee Pass area. And again, my mom was trying to get rid of me. At this time, I was 17, and I was a real pain in the butt. And she was trying to get rid of me. And I went on this uh, Sierra Club trail maintenance project and we were rerouting a trail, and during that project, I was grubbing out a new section of trail when I whacked a soapstone bowl that was upside down in the dirt, and it flipped up, and there's this soapstone bowl. It's truncated. It's sliced in half, not by me, but it broke in the past, and I looked at that, and I looked at it, and I was pretty sure it wasn't pottery because my mom had taken me all over the southwest and I'd been to Mesa Verde and Chaco and that. But I didn't know that rock was so soft you could carve it. And the the day after I found that bowl happened to be the day that Richard M. Nixon resigned as president. So the ranger rode in 18 miles on his horse with two gallon jugs of Krabari red wine, which was the absolutely cheapest wine that you could get and we celebrated like that and I asked him so I found this thingy here and he goes go ahead kid keep it you know we were all at the whole country was in a good mood we thought we thought that uh, sanity had returned to the uh, the United States how wrong we were but we, re- we really thought that things would improve and so he let me take that bowl back and I packed it out those 18 miles and it sat on the mantelpiece until I failed college a couple of times, flamboyantly. <laughs> and and then I got to the University of Wyoming at the tender age of about 27 or so. And I walked into the anthro department and saw soapstone bowls in the museum. And then there was a flash. And I knew what I was going to do after that.
1: So you, <laughs> So that definitely shaped... Least, oh, yeah. and, we'll, and, we'll t- and we'll talk about that, I think, either in the second segment or later in this one. That shaped your future research. And what ultimately brought you to the University of Wyoming? You obviously had ties there in the past. What brought you to that department?
0: It was nearby. I had, I had gone to Colorado College where I failed miserably. And it was a great education, but I wasn't going to go back there and finish. And I happened to be living in Evanston, Wyoming, at the other end of the state, in the southwest corner. And I was making really good money as an engineering technician. And I just got tired of talking to construction guys about how messed up they were going to get that night, or what their wife did to them on Fridays, or how big their boat was. And I wanted to have an intellectual conversation. I grew up in an intellectual household, and I realized... I better go back and to school and finish up and uw was the logical choice george frisen's reputation had had proceeded and uw was getting favorable press and i was in state so it was the the option i also have the family cabin in centennial so if nothing else i knew i could live there and go to school if need be but turns out i I got a place
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Um, what was your first experience with George Frizen?
0: I I don't remember. First experience, I suspect it was in a classroom. I took every class that I could from Doc, and he would walk in with a carousel full of slides. These are film slides, of course, because this was back in the 80s, and a pocket full of change, And he would stare at the clock on the wall at the back of the classroom, jingle his change, and talk about his slides. And for those that weren't listening, he was a terrible teacher. But for those that were listening, it was absolutely riveting. And I sat in the front row along with P.J. Gemberling, who's a Native American rights lawyer, or was, in, in Casper. And the two of us competed head-to-head for every single point there was and i just found doc riveting i eventually worked for him at the looking bill site uh, up in northwest wyoming outside of dubois and that's that's where i got to know him doc and i well we, we shared some times i was the field school wrangler one year and this was back in the early days of Wyoming archaeology going digital in this case it was a Toshiba T100 laptop computer one of the first laptops and when you turned it on you got a dos prompt you got the c the c prompt and you had to run you know you had to type run blah 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 and run the program it was interfaced with a Seattle light it was a total station and we were we were the f- The first in Wyoming to use that, it was Marcel and Eric Ingbar and Doc and Mary Lou Larson that did that. And it was bulky, of course, because interfaces weren't any good and there was a DOS prompt and it was not a rugged laptop. And Marcel and Ingbar had rigged up a a system that, that sort of worked, but it crashed every couple of hours or so. And during the middle of a 10 day, Everybody in charge went away for a couple of days. Frizen went to visit a site. Marcel had to attend a conference. Eric went to a wedding or something like that. And they left me in charge with the field school. And so 20 minutes after they left, the computer crashed. And I was not computer literate. And all of us tried in the field school, all 14 of us. And none of us were particularly computer literate at that time. But we could not get it booted up and talking to the theodolite. So we had to switch back and kick it old school and use line levels and tape measures and maintain straight sidewalls. And we dug like that for, I don't know, six or eight days. And then uh, we dug like that for several days. And then Frizzin came back, and I remember him looming over me. And Frizzin was an enormous presence, just enormous. He was looming over me, and I was down in the pit, digging away. And he goes, hmm, move some dirt. And that was that. <laughs> <And it's> like, <laughs> I was so proud. <laughs> I nearly died. <laughs> I thought that was the greatest compliment you could get. And Later on, we traveled to South Africa together. I spent two, three weeks with him and his wife and uh, my dad and John Albany's the late geoarchaeologist in Wyoming, uh, traveling around looking at rock art sites and seeing early man sites. And that was a lot of fun. Got to know George socially. And then he became a frequent dinner guest. He and Mary Beth Galvan, who was like MA student number two or three at UW, they were best buddies. They would come over for dinner and we'd have a rip-roaring good time. You'd get get a bottle of... uh, of Cabernet Sauvignon and the Doc, and he'd loosen up and tell you what he really thought. <laughs> it was a lot of fun to be with him. When was this? This is like mid eighties, or is this early nineties? I met him in the mid mid to late eighties, and okay. in the nineties is when we went to South Africa. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this: back in the day, there in the eighties, what was archaeology like? <laughs> As David Hurst Thomas put it, the Cowboys of Science. You know, everybody was wearing a straw hat, a Levi's jacket, and surveying in uh, cowboy boots. And there was was probably a bottle nearby or stashed in the pickup truck. And there were a lot of field judgments and a whole lot of walking and a whole lot of partying. And I got in on the tail end of that. Okay. I guess we can't go into too much detail with the partying, but I've just always wondered what
3: 80s archaeology was like because going through, you know, site reports and curation and artifact, you know, forms from back then, it's like, what was going on? But
1: yeah, no. all I envision is like tube tops and cowboy boots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're not far off. <laughs> you are not far off. You know, things really haven't changed that much. You'll still see some of that today. There was a different attitude. There were actually a lot of cowboys in archaeology. Many of the contract archaeologists that I learned with when I was just starting out were river guides and ski instructors and did archaeology to pay the bills when there wasn't something. So one guy just lived out of his truck and he'd, he'd go to Steamboat and teach skiing in the winter and do archeology span all summer long. So there was a lot, of, a lot of freeform there. Graduate students were further and farther between at the time. And of course there was the, the big push towards science, you know, the Binford, the New Mexico mafia, of <laughs> Eric Ingbar, Dave Rapson, and all the people influenced by Lou Binford down at New Mexico came up here and made us much more explicit and
1: scientific. So you kind of, you worked through that transition where you were, where, I mean, obviously you were using technology early on. Yeah. But, you know, it had to be very interesting to be part of that, as that wave goes through of Lou being Lou Binford, you know, loud, pissing everyone off, but also writing these really good articles about how things should be more scientific and, etc was that was it was it really interesting to watch that happen or oh
0: it was it was there were adherents here uh, everybody was an adherent with the exception of the older professors like Frizen saw the benefit of it uh, chuck Rear was an early adapter because he went to new mexico but some of the older archaeologists were still seat of the pants cultural historians like that but for the most part wyoming embraced it wholeheartedly Unfortunately, at the same time, haven't let it go since. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> haven't let it go since. It kind of alienated the public at the time because they were really explicit about hypotheses and hypothesis testing, and the public wanted to see cool stuff and know what was happening on their land, and that hasn't changed at all. So it was a fun time. Post-processualism. Was never my thing. I never drank that Kool-Aid much. I sipped it a little bit. But post-processualism was even worse. I never understood that. And that was the first question in my oral exams for becoming a master's candidate. What's post-processualism? I I don't have a clue.
2: (laughs) Well, that's a good segue. We'll be right back with um, episode 93 with Dr. Rich Adams, and we'll continue on talking about his master's thesis work.
1: Welcome back to episode 93 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are talking with Dr. Richard Adams. David is currently with us and joined halfway through the last little bit. What up? up? So we mentioned in the intro, Rich, that you... I think I said spoon fed me the Kool-Aid. That's at, correct. At, at CSU, could you talk about how we met each other and so so ultimately
2: I want I was, embarrassing stories of Connor. Like I've had oh some my professors on here and I've been roasted and so I'm I'm willing to Let's see some Connor stories from undergraduate.
0: Okay, happy to oblige. Connor's one of my favorites. So, the first time I met Connor, He was in a class, I believe it was North American Archaeology. And this was a really cramped classroom. It was kind of hot at times. It was in the afternoon. People were dropping like flies. And I assigned something where you had to to pick a time period and a site and discuss that in a five-page paper. And I made it very stepwise. And Connor was still dressing... Pretty much soccer style those days. Uh, And he was was kind of a punk, sat in the back, and the room was filled with cute girls. I think you'll agree. And he might have been somewhat distracted, but Never. never. I remember. Connor? No. I remember he wrote his paper on Danger Cave, and that might have been your second anthropology class.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. was Doctor Creekmore was my first one.
0: Yeah, yeah. and I was really impressed with his paper because he took on a really tough topic, you know, eleven thousand years of prehistory at Danger Cave, and did a pretty credible job for not knowing a damn thing about (laughs) archaeology. And I thought that was pretty cool. And there were there were a lot of other students in that class who also stepped up and did good work. But I was. particularly impressed with Connor, and I believe I was flogging the field school pretty hard because the usual field school instructor, Dr. Jason LaBelle, was on sabbatical, and the CSU had asked me to teach the field school. I was like, yeah, finally, and I was flogging it pretty hard, and a couple students came out of that field school uh, who've since gone on. Connor being one of them, Hallie Meeker, who's an archaeologist in her own right. Okay, a couple of those probably.
1: So, Lissa, still does. Lissa kind of, from yes. a, from afar, yeah.
0: Yep, I had fourteen of the, okay, twelve of the the best students a person <laughs> could ask for in that 2011 CSU field school. It was just fantastic, and uh, several have gone on that I'm particularly proud of. Connor and Hallie and Lisa and William. William is, is doing public outreach stuff. Uh, it's, it's been fantastic. And boy, did they have fun <laughs> in the field school. I camped a long way from where the, the action occurred, so I would have plausible deniability. <laughs> but there were raves, uh, there was loud music, there was inebriation, Uh, There was TP creeping, um, there were breakups, there were get-togethers, I'm not naming names. (laughs) There there was a lot of flaming testosterone and estrogen, and also students that just could not get enough archaeology. Oh my God, you guys were tremendous. You just... All the time asking questions, wanting to do more, it was fantastic. It was kind of a throwback to the old days of field schools because everybody was just so into it now, yeah, much more so than people are now with COVID and and yeah. and veganism, <laughs> and and, yeah, and yeah. having cars. Nobody had a car, or a few people had a car.
1: Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, we spent a lot of time in Northwestern Wyoming. I think the one of the quotes was, "I didn't know this was mountain climbing school," because <laughs> <laughs> Rich Rich put us through the ringer. I mean, he he was really focused on. He wanted to show us cool stuff, but he also wanted us to hike and be aware that this is going to be your life. You're going to be a field tech at some point, and you're going to have to put the work in and be able to hike over mountains. Whatever train was occurring, so I think that was that was super important. Also, Doctor Brian Schroeder was uh, part of that, who was on a couple episodes of ours. But yeah, so that's you got me addicted to it. I mean, it was yep. I think it was the the culture there. It was you, your excitement, your and Brian's excitement, Matt's excitement. I think that all kind of like yeah, really got me interested.
0: And I also. I told everyone that this was not going to be your average field school. Anybody can learn how to become a field technician. This was going to be crew chief school. You're going to learn what it takes to be in charge. Because I just recently graduated from being a crew chief at the state archaeologist's office in Wyoming. And I was telling all the students about the expectations, what they needed to do, what the next step would be, how to interpret a site, how to how to determine national register eligibility. All these things. And it took with some of the students, not all, but it took with some. And Connor is an example of that. It was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I turned out okay. I don't know about what these guys would say. But we did visit High Rise Village, which was Mixed in eventually with your dissertation work, yep. But your master's work was specifically on soapstone use and it prevalence throughout Wyoming, right?
0: That's correct. Back in those days, a master's thesis was expect- at Wyoming was expected to be two hundred pages long, and I was a little I was a little worried because mine clocked in at like one ninety six, and mm-hmm. I thought, oh god, prison's going to come after me, because you were writing. Master's theses at the University of Wyoming were immense. They were big, maybe not equivalent to a PhD somewhere else, but they were more than what most people asked for in a master's thesis. So I lived and breathed soapstone for a couple of years and wrote everything there was to know about soapstone in in Wyoming and and part of the rest of the U.S. and, and the world and worried that I didn't have enough data. And I did replicative archaeology. I made soapstone pots and bowls and beads. I tried to incorporate all four fields because UW is a four-field school. And I worked long and hard to find a Shoshone word so I could say I did a little bit of token linguistics in there. (laughs) The, the, The biological anthropology was much harder. But, you know, I wanted to know everything since I found that pot. The things are just so fascinating. No soapstone bowl had ever been dated when I started, and I got a, a grant and got a date that was protohistoric, basically. But because of the radiocarbon dating and calibration curve, it could be it could be anything from 1650 to 1950, which didn't help a whole lot with with one sample. Now there are six or eight bowls that have been dated. But it was a step in the right direction. I tried replicating the manufacturing marks that you could see on soapstone bowls using hatchets and knives and saws and stone tools and bifaces. And it, it turns out that you can actually analyze some of the most recent history of a soapstone pot by looking at the manufacturing marks. And a good third of them have little tool marks on them suggesting that they were made during the proto-historic or historic periods. I had fun. I'm, I'm sure two other people have read it. You know, <laughs> I, every time there's a soapstone art, artifact found in Wyoming, I get called uh, to look at it. They're still fascinating because the residue on the inside of a soapstone bowl should preserve the last few meals that were cooked in there. And there's some fascinating stuff that Matt Stern has done with residue analysis on soapstone bowls, and they actually found the ingredients of a traditional northern, not northern, yeah, maybe northern Shoshone meal of pine nuts, fish, and onions in a soup. And they, those are the, the fatty acids that they identified using chromatography, something like that. And so, it's cool. It's a, it's a lot like what you can do with uh, analyzing the interior of a clay pot. Mm-hmm. And also, final thing, don't get me started on soapstone. Soapstone bowls were seen as the possessions of women. Dick Washakie, who was Chief Washakie's grandson, said that soapstone pots were the possession of women, and they were handed down from mother to daughter and never traded, which if that's true, it's one of the few durable archaeological artifacts that we can, in Wyoming, that we can associate exclusively with women. So we should be studying the heck out of them just because of that. They were also made for trade, but oh well, mm-hmm. it was a good story when Dick Washakie said it.
3: I guess, in hindsight, in your opinion, what would be the purpose of a 200 page thesis versus like, why do you think we, I mean, there's obvious reasons why we turn that condense that but
0: yeah to prove to George you could do it
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay to, to prove you had the right stuff I mean it, there are some damn good ones Kim Smiley's thesis on running bison is still cited Mike uh, Wilson's thesis is still cited I mean there are some theses from the 70s that are still the best literature there is because prison insisted on a big huge uh, thesis that was comprehensive and was also a contribution of original research. Nowadays, they don't make much sense.
1: Hmm. But- yeah, you read mine, so mine doesn't. Make- <laughs> 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 yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy's in the Academy of Sciences, so I guess like he knows what he's doing. But also, that was like back in the day, so I don't know. But well,
0: Nowadays, the 30-page the thesis makes a lot of sense because, you know, a big 200-page thing, it's it's too short to be a book, and it's way too long to get published. So what are you going to do with that? It's it's your yeah. basic.
1: Carlton, was yours very long? Your no, thesis? it
2: was – I think it came out, yeah, 30 pages. I mean, I think also since, Rich, you were there, they've got a PhD program, and I think the focus is more on the PhD students and – Master students are there for tuition money, and you got to you got to get them through the gauntlet, two uh, years and out.
0: Yeah, there's some of that. There's UW still produces very good MA students. The, Not but, us three, though. <laughs> we're, we're the exception. Well, you're good in other ways, you know, <laughs> leading, <laughs> leading the charge, down at the buck, or, or, or <laughs> in, encouraging people uh, to get more interested in archaeology
3: that's true because you've got the the leading podcast
0: (laughs) in in anthropology Uh, Mm -hmm. but yeah it was it was an ordeal to write a 200 page thesis it was 12 chapters long or something like that it was it was three times longer than my dissertation
2: (laughs) whoa (laughs) yeah i was about to say i think like my dissertation is is five 30-page chapters to be made into articles, so your your thesis is longer than mine is.
0: Yeah, and that was common at the time. The dissertations that were coming out were immense. They were the phone book of a major metropolitan area. You, there was no way you would print one out.
2: Yeah, because I, I use Mike Page's thesis a lot, and that was back in like 2008. I think is when he done his, and that that's like mm-hmm. 300 pages, 400 with all the figures and tables. Just like, dude, I don't have time. <laughs> I yeah. just don't have
0: time to read this whole thing. Well, that's page. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's very intense and very focused on pottery. The dude likes pottery. I, the dude likes pottery. Yes, there's yeah. a lot of pottery being found in Wyoming. When I started, there was a, a shoebox in curation that held almost all of the pottery in Wyoming. And now their cabinet's full of it. It's just all
1: over the place. Well, and they're, they're even like classifying that. it other than, like, what, grayware, brownware, whatever they called yeah. it. They're actually, like, dividing it up into something that's meaningful categories now. <laughs> yeah, I was
2: chatting with Spencer at Plains, and he's like, so, uh, yeah, it looks like we're, uh, <laughs> we're, we are we're found some uh, pottery right. in it, and it's it's not uh, – we're, we're trying to figure it out. You should come check it out sometime. Nice, Spencer. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: do you think that increase in pottery in the repository is a is a collection bias thing back when there wasn't much and now there is more or was it just straight up they weren't finding it until
0: now they weren't finding it until now nobody nobody knew what they were looking for because they were were all rancher archeologists who who'd never seen pottery in the southwest or in the east and Mm. so just didn't have an eye for it and huh. it turns out that it is all over the place in Wyoming, but in little teeny tiny pieces for the most part. You know, Spencer, uh, the field school this summer, got a piece of pottery that was 7 centimeters by 14 centimeters, which is, you know, basically a Boone and Crockett-sized uh, piece <laughs> of pottery <laughs> for Wyoming. <laughs> it's was huge.
1: Yeah. yeah. So... I, I have a biased question to ask. Sure. Why is mountain archaeology the best?
0: <laughs> in field school, when I was in field school, there was an older guy that was in field school with me. His name is John Lund, and he was an architectural engineer, but grew up a, a pot hunter all throughout Wyoming. And he put it best. He said, "Every day spent above ten thousand feet doesn't count for your three score and ten. It's a free day, and that's one reason why mountain archaeology is the best. Is because days spent above treeline are unbelievably precious, and they are so wonderful. And it was it was all mountain archaeology wasn't exactly brand new, but." We were going into places where no archaeology had really been done, and what we were finding was just truly extraordinary. You know, Will Houston was probably the first mountain archaeology. That was his master's thesis at Boulder in like 67 or 65. And then James Benedict with the Front Range did amazing mountain archaeology. George Frison did a whole bunch there, he went on a pack trip in the Pinedale side of the winds and recorded a bunch of sites, just, you know, dots on a map and one sentence description there. But his dots were accurate and there really wasn't much done. it's his name, Hayden Felt, the guy who you did your your thesis on. He was real cutting edge, never did anything with it. But boy, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. It's, you know, it, Part of it is the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Act, their definition of wilderness as an area untraveled by man, where man is just a visitor, despite the sexist language that still persists today. Uh, you think of wilderness areas, oh, no humans were there. Well, the hell they weren't. You no, know, they were all over the site density up above Treeline in parts of the Wind Rivers is as high as the site density in major oil and gas fields in Southwest Wyoming. I mean, they're just sites everywhere. And we, we were just ignoring them. I asked my field school instructor, Eric Ingbar, who set up the SHPO database and was a real cutting edge archeologist. I asked him, so what's the definition of a site? And he gave the greatest answer ever something George Frison can drive a backhoe to. <laughs> <laughs> and that was so true. <laughs> In those days, if Doc well, couldn't drive a backhoe to it, it wasn't, a, it wasn't
2: a sight. Fair enough. And with that, we'll go ahead. Uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Adams on Episode 93 of Life for Podcast. Stay tuned.
3: <laughs> Welcome back to Segment 3 of Episode 93 of the Life for Podcast. We're here with Dr. Richard Adams, a dear friend of ours and a good mentor. First, Rich, let me ask you, do you remember the first time you met me? Because I don't necessarily remember when I met you. I know Connor had to have been there.
0: I believe it was when you two moved in together. Oh, right. In right, that house right. over on the north side of Laramie. <laughs> that oh, shack? That, that shack, yes. The concrete pad, The icebox. Ice yeah. That has um, hosted a whole series of archaeologists. I think there's still archaeologists living there.
3: Oh, Maybe. Um, okay, yeah, I, I do remember that because you were sitting on the couch with Connor and I walked in and I was like, who's that man like, yeah. on our couch? Uh, okay. Strider,
0: like, your dog was a puppy. He
3: was, yeah. yeah loud. I
0: remember, little tiny puppy. Well, not little tiny, but real puppy ish.
3: He loved you too, I guess, because you had the food. Yep,
0: yeah, always <laughs> had milk bones.
3: <runs. laughs> okay, yeah, so then. There were a few times you took us skiing. Uh, you actually, yeah. you and Andy taught me to cross-country ski. Yep. Yeah. And then another time you took Connor and I to see the wiki up that you built for your dissertation. Or while yes. you were doing your dissertation. And you yeah. said, hey, have you ever used a stone sling before? And I had used <laughs> one a very long time ago, upwards of a decade, and I didn't do well with it. So I said, yeah. And I took it and I almost killed Rich. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that vividly. And every time I see you, I like cringe because I'm like, I almost killed the man.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, well,
1: now David's got a lot better with the sling. I've seen him throw it, so you know he's sponsored. killing, yeah. <laughs> killing more animals, less humans.
0: Oh, always yeah. good. Slings are amazing. The first turbocharged weapon, the first weapon that really sings. You know, ooh,
3: that's a good it's way got to put some
0: it. Sing to it. You know, like that thwap
3: yeah I guess I got I really got to know you at uh Laprele because you were like kitchen, yep. kitchen like, doing that stuff kind of just I've like, heard so much care. about
2: your breakfast burritos man. I've never oh, had man. one, but oh. Jesus, people will not stop about the rich
1: <laughs> breakfast burritos it's It's not that though it's his whole cuisine it's like a yeah. it's a whole it's a culinary experience in we the
3: had field fa in the field like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. <We> had <laughs> in the field
1: don't you always? Yeah, I had the Soleil in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming.
3: Handmade yeah. ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's- yeah. you do a good job with that. Also, the first time I was at LaPrel, I wasn't on the KP list at all. And I was there for like a week. And I was like, hey, Rich, I'm not on the list. And you were like, uh, I see your name. And then you just like let me not do any KP, yeah. which was nice. Well, I wonder why that was. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. What was I going to say next? Right. So another time... After we got to know each other, you had me come give a lecture for you at Colorado State. And where were we going with this, Connor?
1: So, a- so <laughs> I've I've heard from a bunch of students, and I've been inspired. A lot of folks have really glommed on to you and and really appreciated your teaching style. And could you? I, we really want to talk about how you make archaeology. Right. digestible, approachable for, you know, an intro student who was sitting in the back of the class staring at women, and it was a military building that was like 6,000 years old, and you know, there's was like 100 degrees, I might have yeah. been sleeping, you know, how, like, how did you enthrall me to, you know, be interested in archaeology?
0: Same way David did when he did his master's defense and when he came down to CSU. Uh, you have to talk to people... Like people, you can't kind you uh, talk down to them and you have to make it exciting. Being a college dropout, a kind of repeat college dropout, I had strong ideas about how pedagogy should work. Ooh, I used a big word. Okay, how pedagogy should work. And I taught as if I wanted to learn the material and that was that. I just wanted to make it fun. Most of the people in the classes I taught were non-majors, and that's still the case in the intro classes, and there are some things you want to impart to them, the big lessons, and you want to make it as fun as as possible, and you want to make it memorable because, as, as David knows, he's a master of it, if you are laughing, you are learning because you saw something in a new light. It's Suddenly you see something and it makes you laugh. You just learned a new thing. And, you know, what could be funnier than human foibles? And we've always been, we've always been creating folly all throughout prehistory. You know, imagine Gobekli Tepe, you know, the 11,500 year old megaliths in Turkey. But what the heck were they thinking? They weren't growing any crops. And yet they're erecting 20-ton boulders. It had to have been like Lollapalooza. You know? <laughs> it had to have been some strange gathering where people like, well, we're just making it up, but let's stick up a bunch of rocks. <laughs> we don't have any way to feed these people, but you know, the, uh, you, you got to put people back in the past and make it interesting yeah. to do that. And David's master's defense on the size of projectile points versus the delivery device was pee in your pants funny and cutting edge research. And he, I think you did it twice at CSU.
3: Yes, for the big class and then for like a smaller
0: class. Yeah. And you know, I got requests
1: after that.
0: <laughs> Bring David back. <laughs> oh yeah. I want to hear more stuff like him. He's actually funny. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Could you uh, give us the title of your, your talk? David?
3: It has since changed. Bob requested it be changed, but I don't want to. Uh, projectile dysfunction. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was apt. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I would agree, Rich, and I did learn a lot of that from you. It's just, like, you connected with the students and, like, I don't know, you just kind of looked at them as if, I don't know, it's interesting because it's how you approached Connor and I. Like, you and Connor had this relationship that I you know wasn't part of at first, like you'd known Connor longer than me, yeah. but then like you immediately just like adopted me as one of your own like surrogate kids, and like you betcha. Sort of, and yeah, and like you just have a good way of doing that, and I felt appreciated, and I think when you're teaching to your students, like they probably get that same vibe
0: I think so, thank you I have, I have a big extended family, I no longer have any family, but I have a huge extended family with students who have uh, come into. My life and my wife's life, and and you guys are just all family. And it's because you have a spark, you know. You have, there's a certain amount of glee or or humor in what you do. You're not standing up there and dully reciting the facts and saying this will be on the test on Thursday, but you you want to make it fun because learning is fun what was it that got you into the field anyway it was an introductory class and mm-hmm. those introductory classes need to be taught by good teachers it's not necessarily the best thing to have a phd candidate get up there and deliver a, a class especially if they're terrified but if if they have self confidence you know carlton i'm sure you're rocking it you know you've got I a, hear every it. every
2: semester i get students that say this is my f- Pete Carlton is my favorite teacher or best teacher I've ever had. I do. There was, I don't know, Rich, you probably don't know what uh, Y.O. Snaps is, but there was like the Snapchat group at Wyoming. It was called Y.O. Snaps. And I love Ken Humphries to death. He's great. I was his TA for intro to archaeology. And uh, I did a lecture for him and I saw in Y.O. Snaps, it's like that face when your TA is a better teacher than your actual professor. And it's me like pointing at the lecture and you just see Ken off to the corner just like watching. I was like, all right, I think I got yeah, something
0: here. You gotta go in there. That's that's the way it should be, if people say that you're you're connecting to them. It, you have to realize that these students are not the same as my generation by a long shot. They want to be entertained and engaged much more than it's hard to describe what we wanted. We wanted we wanted data delivery. and ideas about thinking and uh, so you know everything is completely changed in the way teaching is done and media and all of that and, and part of the reason I retired is that it was, there was such a huge divide between my dad jokes and the students that I was <laughs> talking to that you know references to the Simpsons just don't cut it anymore and I, that was cutting edge when I started. <laughs>
1: So would would you recommend for people teaching now to a have a golden doodle who is very personable <laughs> and can can go and meet anyone and chat and just be be friendly and be also a coloring book activity say to to start off the the class which you had really you had success with didn't you
0: That's kind of a trick question <laughs> Yeah, you need both. I'll talk about the doodle first. The dog was the best idea ever. This is my wife's dog. She's a certified therapy dog. She would walk into a class of 100 people, meet everybody in the class, pick out her favorites, and hang out with them. I brought her on test days back when I gave tests. That's another good thing. Don't ever give tests. That's bullshit. Lucy would come to class, and I said, you know, after you finish your test, you can just snuggle with the dog. And, And one student famously came in, signed his name to the test, uh, handed it in with 12 blank questions and smuggled with the dog. And I gave him a passing grade because he was clearly having a bad day. The coloring book is sort of my wife's idea and my former office mate, Suzanne Kent at Colorado State University. My wife is an art therapist and she suggested coloring exercises and i used it for a sophomore level class and i'm not a particularly stressful teacher i think and you could i could smell the stress level in the class diminish when i did that and i told my wife that at dinner she goes oh yeah that you know that's common we should do more of that so i started including more and more Coloring exercises, I went online, looked for line art and anything I could to make weaponized and turn into a coloring exercise and everybody had to bring colored pencils. And then Suzanne Kent, my office mate at CSU said, you should meet my husband. He's a graphic artist. And I went, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, you guys should do a coloring book because I confessed to her that that was, that was my goal. And we met at an office party. And he liked the idea, and he mocked up a drawing with the information that I gave him, and it was like he could see into my mind. Brian is truly extraordinary. You know, okay, the book has sold three copies, but still, it is the most lavishly illustrated, factually correct, and only world prehistory coloring book that there is. And I think that it is a way to engage with students. Every semester, I surveyed the students as to what worked and what didn't work, where their minds were blown, and I have 11 years of data saying the coloring exercises rocked my world. They really helped me get a handle on prehistory, and they made the class enjoyable, because if I was droning on, and I tend to, well, not everybody can teach well every day, they could spend the time coloring inside the lines very meticulously. And if I was on fire, then they could just sign their name and scroll red all over it and hand it in. And it's also for you future teachers and those of you who are teaching, it is one of the few non-metric ways of getting to know your students. You learn something about them by the colors they choose, where they choose to color, how thoroughly they color, and whether or not they append anything to the the drawing itself. A student who is now at University of Nevada, Reno, studying with Jeff Smith, uh, Erica Bradley, turned a picture of Mesa Verde into a hot tub scene. She took a Macaw whaling ship and turned it into a, uh, a starship. I mean, it was just unbelievable. <laughs> and she's in the MA PhD program and teaching her first class right now. So I'm all for coloring and I have data to back it up.
1: It's sitting on my shelf right now.
0: Ah, so there are only two other two other copies unaccounted for.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have one, two. I, I think I have two copies.
0: Nope. <laughs> well, the, publisher, the publisher did not do us any. Great service. Yeah, when is it going to be back in stock? Yeah, no, probably never. Oh, damn it. Uh, Yeah, it's a a total disappointment. Uh, They only print, it's an as-needed print job. So they won't won't print off copies until they get a request for 10 or 20. Sweet. Do you have some PDFs I could have? (laughs) (laughs) That's a bummer.
3: I think you signed mine and said good luck with how and why. Uh, if I remember correctly. On I believe
0: so. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: So. you said uh, right. Online, you said good, good luck in your job in accounting.
0: <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Sorry, <Connor>. <laughs> 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 yeah. that, You know, you're pretty focused on that middle class existence. Um, uh. <laughs> but you—you you definitely drank the Kool-Aid. You couldn't stop.
2: Yeah, I'm still here. Well, yeah. we'll put.
0: We'll. We'll make sure to
2: put the link for the publisher of, of the coloring book in the <laughs> show notes down below. So if anyone that is listening to this wants a copy of the coloring book. If you get a bunch of people to order some copies, they'll print some more. So maybe we can get a couple more, uh, a couple dozen more printed out for you, Rich. <gasps> I don't know how many copies of The Fifth Beginning we've sold on behalf of Bob Kelly, but we he really? has some royalties at this point. Yeah. Hmm. <clears throat> on that note, Rich, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, this was really fun. We're super excited to have gotten you on, man. So before we end the show, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, videos. That you would recommend for anyone interested in in the topics that we talked about tonight, so like mountain archaeology, Paleo Indian. What are some things you'd suggest to our audience?
0: Oh boy, George Frison's Survival by Hunting. If you have not read anything by Frison, start with that. It is the most accessible book he has written that talks all about his experience as a hunter and an archaeologist, and it's, it's just fantastic reading. I, I, gave away dozens of copies to landowners throughout Wyoming. Anything by James Benedict. They were all self-published by the Center for Mountain Archaeology or something like that. But there's still plenty available like that. He is the father of mountain archaeology. He had a PhD in geology, I think, from Wisconsin and was Just one hell of a scientist. Just one hell of a scientist. And he spent more time up in the mountains than all of all of the rest of us combined. Just fantastic. Well, he's got half a dozen books or so out there. Unfortunately, Footprints in the Snow is the is the article to read. And then Stephen Mithin's book is a great book because it imagines John Lubbock, who wrote the first basically archaeology book back in the 1860s. He places John Lubbock all throughout the world between 20,000 years ago and about 5,000 years ago. And some of those chapters rock, and others are not so good. But I used those in classes for a long time, and students loved them because they're fictionalized accounts of prehistory. And it was that that gave me the idea of teaching as if you were there. First person first-person witness to prehistory so th- those are three authors that i would recommend so what was that last I to name that too Mithen. m-i-t-h-e-n and what was the book i wrote stephen mittens he uh I don't remember the name of the book, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, no worries.
2: Stephen Myth, I'll, I'll, I'll put it up there. I'll find a couple.
1: Oh, God.
0: It's it's not the best book, but certain chapters just shine. Uh, like Mahalo, the this, this site on the Sea of Galilee. that's about 14,000 years old. Oh, my There's gosh. A dog that's, there. A that's a great chapter. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Rich, for joining us today. And if you were given the chance again... Would you still choose to live a life in ruins?
0: Would I ever? I wouldn't have screwed up the first 10 years of my college existence. (laughs) I would have gone straight to the University of Wyoming and been there with Doc on those early excavations. That is my only regret in life. And I enjoy spending my life in ruins.
2: Excellent, man. Well, we just interviewed Dr. Rich Adams. Thank you so
3: much for coming on the show.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, guys. You do wonderful work. Oh, I appreciate it, man.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. And I, I'd just like to add to I don't think I'd be where I'm at now without you um, being there. And I know Connor can probably say the same and Carlton as well. Definitely a good mentor for everybody at Wyoming. So I hope you know that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it means yeah I didn't, I didn't teach. I didn't, a
2: lot. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah. I didn't take a class under you, but i have I've got a lot of secondhand wisdom from you from other grad students so there was always no matter where I was at hell gap or um there was always rich stories and rich advice that was given to me uh secondhand so yeah man appreciate it
3: (laughs) yeah so please be sure to rate and review the podcast I say it every time I don't think we've ever gotten a single review since then no we did didn't we this past week Good. All right, guys. That's how Apple judges if we're doing good. It'll appease the Zuck. It'll appease Xi Jinping. Just do whatever you can do to help us. Freedom, we
0: need Uh, the (laughs) boo.
1: Hashtag canceled. All
3: right.
2: And with that, we are out. Thanks for
3: listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in
1: Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right, Rich suggested this, and it's a quote from Agatha Christie or her husband. Rich, who is the, who is her husband? Max Melowan. Who was an Egyptologist, right? Yes. Okay, okay. So the quote is. An archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested she becomes. The more interested he is in her. Oh, yep, exactly. Yeah. I've heard that one. That's a good one.
2: That is a good one. <laughs> yeah. you know they're making a movie about Death on the Nile now? Oh wow! Yeah. All What's right. That? And with that, we are. We're